Shalom. This is Rabbi David Tilkiger of Congregation Maim Chaim, the Eastern Shores Messianic Synagogue in Daphne, Alabama. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast of our message from Shabbat service. We pray it is a blessing to you and that you see the beauty and light of Yeshua Meshicheinu, Yeshua, our Messiah, in every word you hear. Amen. Well, let's open in a little prayer, shall we? Abba Father, we just we thank you for the opportunity to, to come together and gather in your house this morning. We thank you for the ability to call ourselves your children. We thank you for the adoption and the inclusion that you've given to us. Lord, we thank you for your unconditional love, for, for your constants, um, and for the fact that you continue to um, take us back over and over again, no matter how many times we, we fall or get it wrong. Lord, we just ask for you to open our, our ears and our hearts this morning that we would be aware and perceptive of what you're saying, um, of what your word has, has for us this morning. Lord, I ask that, um, that you would clear my, my mind and, um, and make me an open vessel for that. And we ask all these things in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Well, this year's a leap year, so we have some um, interesting things happen- happening with the reading schedule, uh, if you haven't noticed. And this week we have Parsha Korach uh, singled out all by itself. Um, because we, we need a little more readings to fill in for that extra month. So um, I've, I've read this passage, you know, hundreds of times, um, and I think I've actually even spoken on it here before because they usually go to Messiah Conference about the time that this rolls up. So, um, But this time I wanted to look at it with a fresh set of eyes. You know, I'm always trying to see something new in the Word and, and for God to deepen my understanding um, and so I approached, um, I approached this Parsha this week, and, and as I was reading through it, I began to see uh, how fitting this is for where we are right now. Um, and I couldn't help but realize that, you know, this is um, a really good message for where we are as a as just a community of believers, but also as a as a species, you know, as a human race, what is happening? Um, and so I want to view this kind of through that lens, but not entirely. I don't want that to be the entire focus. Um, so I just kind of want to start by digging into the passage. So if if you'll look at uh, Numbers chapter sixteen, verse one. Uh, begins the Parsha. So I was trying to focus on what were Korok's actions? What was he actually doing? And, and how did they get to the place that they ended up? So looking at verse 1, I was trying to hone in on the verbs. Um, it says that, um, well, depending on your translation, first of all, I had to do a little work on um, getting to the the Hebrew, um, and when I first read the verse, 
the first thing that jumped out at me at the verse is identifying who the key players are. So uh, the verse wants you to know that this is Korah, and this is where he comes from, and th this is his father, and this is his family. And with him were these other two guys, and this is where they come from. So now that that's established, I kind of want to pull that back um, away from from view, all of the, the names and the lineage. And let's just look at the rest of what that verse says. So um, if you take out the son of so-and-so and son of so-and-so, this is what you get if you're translating directly from Hebrew. And, and Korah took and Datan and Abiram. That's it. That's verse 1. What, what did they take? What did, what did Korach take? He didn't take the two men because the text doesn't allow for that. So he took something, and so did these other two guys. Move on to verse 2. And they rose up before or in the face of Moses with 250 princes of the assembly. Now, the word for assembly there is not the normal kahal, which you would expect for the congregation of Israel. It's a different word. It's the word edah, which can mean family. Um, it can mean clan or a gathering. Um, but it's used in Parsha Toldot. The first words of Parsha Toldot are Toldot edah, so the family of or the lineage of. These are the generations of the family of whomever. Okay, so I just want to point that out because that's going to be important. So at this point, we know they took something and they've, they rose up in the face of Moses. So not only do we have Korach and his two friends, but now they've added 250 princes of the most famous uh, guys around from the assembly. So this word rose up, yes, it, it literally means they got up to do something. But when you think about it um, in another sense, it can mean they exalted themselves, they, they rose themselves up in, in spiritual stature or in their own eyes. And the term in the face of in the Hebrew actually uses the word panim and it points, it, it, it points out specifically the mention of Moses' face. So it's kind of like when we say, you know, that flew in the face of something. Um, so I don't really think that they rose up and got all up in Moses' face, but they, were, they rose up before Moses, uh, before who he was as the leader. So this could have been like a literal uprising uh, of dissent. Maybe they literally rose up off the ground. Maybe they receded beforehand. But either way you look at it, you can't deny the fact that they rose up in their own estimation of themselves. Now, the 250 princes uh, that, that joined them, there's some contradiction about this, but some people say these are 250 princes from all the tribes, and some say that these are 250 of the most notable Levites, which is the case. These 250 princes were sons of Levi. So Korah has, has gone into the tribe of Levi, the, the priestly tribe that's supposed to be serving in the tabernacle, and he's recruited 250 of the most popular well-known guys to join his revolt. 
Now, this may account for, for why they use the word Adah instead of Kahal, because they're talking about not the whole assembly of Israel at large, but they're talking about this small, this Adah of Levi, okay? So within this assembly of, of the family of Levi. So verse 3, let's, let's go on. So after they took and rose up, then they gathered themselves together, this is the word kahal. So they congregated themselves together, or they assembled themselves together against, over or above Moses, and against or above Aaron. So the same word used to describe the assembly of Israel, kahal, this is the action they took. They made a division and formed a smaller congregation out of the larger Israel that they were already a part of they fractured off and formed a separate group. This reminds me of John 15, 5 and 6, where Messiah says, I'm the vine and you are the branches. The one who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and is dried up. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you separate yourselves from the congregation of the nation of Israel, you're like a branch that's been cast off. There's only one family. There's only one kahal. There can be no units in there and, and survive. So that's one of the first things that I, I recognized. All right, so the next thing um, that happens is Korah is actually going to state his case before Moses. So he says to Moses, You've taken too much for yourself in the sense of amassing a great abundance for oneself. Seeing as how the whole congregation, the whole Adah, not Kahal, but the whole tribe of Levites is holy and the Lord is in their midst. Why then do you exalt yourself above the, the congregation of the Lord, the whole congregation of Israel? Basically he's saying, You've put all this on yourself. You've lifted yourself up above all of us. But all of the Levites are holy, and God's in the midst of each and every one of us. Why are you the only one doing all of this? Um, why are you magnifying yourself above God's people is basically the accusation that's been leveled at Moses. So um, you can see here how the thrust of this is basically directed at Aaron. I know that it seems like it's at Moses, but when you think about who Korah is, he's a, he's a Levite. He's a Kohathite, which means that um, he, his duty, his family's duty in the tabernacle was to carry the, the implements within the temple. So the showbread, the Ark of uh, the Covenant, the incense. He was responsible. His family was as close to being Kohen Gadol as you could be. I mean, you're almost in the, in the Holy of Holies. You know, you're right there next to the veil. You're working with those, uh, those elements. But this wasn't enough for him. And he's saying, if all the Levites are holy, then why are you putting yourself way up there on a pedestal as Kohen Gadol getting to do all the, the high priest, all these things that maybe we want to do? Um, so... He backs his accusation up um, by saying that all the Levites are holy. Now, Korach, is, if you don't know this, Korach is first cousins with Moses and Aaron. By order of birthright of their fathers, Korach should have been made head of all of the Kohathites. So Levi had three sons. 
Um, and Aaron and Moses' dad was one, and Korah's dad, Korach's dad was another, and then he had, then he had the other one. So um, Korach's father, Izhar, was one of these four brothers. Let me think here. No, Korach, Koath was one of the three sons of Levi, and his grand, it was grandfather to Moses. Okay, so we got these four brothers, one brother being Amram, which is Moses' dad. Now, Numbers 3.30 states that um, Elizaphon, the son of the, the youngest brother, his child was made head of all the rest of them. Now, as, as the rightful grandchild, the one that should have been put there, I can see how Korok may have gotten his feathers bristled. But this is, this is an age-old story in Scripture. We've seen this time and time again. This is what Joseph was sold into slavery for. This is what Jacob and Esau fought over. This is what Cain and Abel probably fought over in some respect. And so now we see it again cropping up here in the priesthood. Um, so on the grounds of this familiar territory, let's talk about who else is playing in this story. Who else is involved in this rebellion? You've got these two characters, Datan and Abiram. Who are they and what are they doing here? Well, these are two brothers from the family of Reuben. And if you know the history of the sons of Jacob, you know that Reuben was prone to be a usurper to begin with. In fact, Reuben lost his birthright because he usurped his father's place and took his wife to be his own. Yeah, so he lost his birthright. So here's Reuben's descendants, and somehow they've, Inter they've put themselves in the midst of this argument between the Levites about the priesthood. Um, which seems to me like they don't have a dog in this fight. So what are they doing here? So kind of as we look at this story from that perspective, we want to try to figure out why they're involved and, and what they stand to gain. And then maybe that'll help things come a little clearer into focus. So Let's talk about the dynamic at play here. So we've got these two distinct groups. We've got Korak and the 250 Levites. We've got these two brothers, these two Reubenite brothers. Um, and we have to ask ourselves, are these two groups really after the same thing? Or are they simply banding together for a short time and using each other to get what they want? So the next element of this story um, that I found to be reminiscent of other things we've read is um, the role of the accuser. We know that Satan is the accuser of the brethren, and in this story we see that he has the same old tactics and he's the same old serpent. How many of you have ever been falsely accused of something? Have your, had your actions or your words skewed? are misrepresented. It doesn't feel good. It's hurtful. How many of you have been the accuser? They say that the things that really irritate you about other people are secretly things that you have crouching at your own door inside. And so as I've matured in my walk, I've really tried to slow down and, and perform some self-introspection. When, when things rub me the wrong way, I always want to try to slow down and ask the Lord to show me 
why is this bothering me? Why am I so irritated by this? Is this something inside of me? Now, I've see, I see the same things at play here with Korah. Because if you look carefully at what he's saying, he's playing that game I like to play with my kids called do as I say, not as I do. And he's actually accusing Moses of every single thing that he's done up to this point in the story. Now, if you look at this in the Hebrew, this whole story is like this masterfully written um, choreographed in technicolor, like turns a phrase and these snappy comebacks and words that sound similar and plays on, uh, you know, phonetics. Of course, when you read in English, it kind of loses some of that, but it's like reading anything in a foreign language. You know, you read a poem in a different language and it's supposed to rhyme and it should flow and ebb, but it doesn't quite sound the same. So while we're going through this, I want to pick up some of that uh, of the original Hebrew and, and kind of let you see what that looks like. So let's take a closer look at some of the things that Korach did and what he accused Moses of. The first thing that, that we see, the first verb that we see used about Korach is that he took. We're not sure. The text doesn't identify what he took. If I had to guess, I would say that he took more on himself than what was rightly given to him. He took on the belief in persona that he had the right to usurp authority. When you match that with the first thing that he says to, to Moses, it, he says to Moses, you take too much on yourselves. You've bestowed too much unto yourselves. The next thing that they did was they rose up and they lifted themselves up. Well, what's the next thing he says to Moses? He accuses him. He says, the whole congregation of, of Levites is equally holy. We're equal. You're not any better. He lifts himself up at the same time, the other side of his mouth, he's telling Moses, you're no better. We're all equal. The next thing he says is, um, we see that, that his congregation, his little assembly, that they assemble themselves against Moses. They call against Moses and Aaron. So the next thing he accuses Moses of is he says, you know, seeing that we're all holy, why do you exalt yourselves above the Lord's kahal or the Lord's assembly? So every single thing that he's done, he goes and accuses Moses of. Verse 4 um, tells us what happens after this is finished and how Moses takes the news. Um, as much as I've thought about what I might do next if I were in his shoes, what Moses actually does is likely to be the least likely thing that I would do, which is why I'm not Moses. Um, but it says, and Moses shemad. I, I added the ED on that for special effect. But, you know, we say the Shema, and that means to hear, and I've always thought it's hear and obey, and it is, but it's hear and to actually take it in, to perceive intelligently, to understand, to comprehend. I'm listening to you, and I'm listening to you. Does that make sense? So Moses shemad what he was saying. He heard it, and he perceived what he was really saying, and he fell on his face. 
Now, this is in stark contrast to how Korah is portraying him. Korah is portraying him as this lofty ruler of the people who is taking all of the glory and the riches for himself. But Moses takes on the most humble position that one can possibly take. He falls on his face. This is exactly, this is exactly what the enemy does to us not falling on his face, but accusing us of the very things that he is the father of and guilty of himself. The accuser of the brethren stands. He's the original OG of sin. Oh, that means old guys, if y'all don't know what that means. OG, the real OG? No? Sorry. He's the original old guy of sin and murder and pride, and he accuses us whenever we take the bait. He was a liar from the beginning, but he accuses God of being dishonest and being a God who breaks his covenants and doesn't keep his word. He accuses God of being a mean and vengeful dictator. All the while, he slithers about picking off whoever he can. And he attempted a coup just like this one. Do you recognize any of this behavior in your own lives? Have you been accused by someone who does the very thing they accused you of? Or have you been the one accusing of something that you're harboring in your own heart? We go into verse 5, and Moses is going to give him an answer. The verse says, He spoke to Korak and all his assembly, saying, Even tomorrow the Lord will show you who are his and who is holy, and will cause to come near to him even whom he has chosen. That word for chosen is the Hebrew word bachar. And it sounds an awful lot like the Hebrew word bechor, which means firstborn. So here's an issue of I'm entitled to this position because I am the rightful heir. I'm the chosen one. Sounds like the seven I statements in Isaiah of Satan. Moses tells him, Whoever the Lord decides to behar, to choose as his firstborn and right heir, that's who he chooses, and we'll find out tomorrow who it is. He goes on to say, Even he whom he has chosen will he cause to come near to him. The first things out of Moses' mouth are detailed instructions on how the Lord plans to handle this. Moses doesn't have to think about how he's going to handle this. He's relying on the Lord to handle it, to defend him for him. Now, at that exact moment that Korach is wrapping up his, you know, diatribe, Moses must be hearing from God immediately. And maybe that's one reason why he fell on his face, because he was hearing from the Lord or he was experiencing the presence of the Lord. But we know that he must have heard something right then because the next words out of his mouth are these detailed instructions about how this is going to go down. Right. Right. Instead of trying to justify his actions or his position or change their mind. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
That's an interesting perspective. Yeah, he doesn't have a problem with that. So when we look at verse 6 and 7, it says, Moses is telling Korah, Do this, Korah, and your whole assembly. Take for yourself censers. Put fire and incense into them in the presence of Adonai. Tomorrow, the man that Adonai chooses will be the holy one. You, sons of Levi, are the ones who have taken too much. Moses uses their same accusation and levels it back at them. Now, at this moment in Israel's history, the very use of the word censor ought to have everyone in the congregation trembling. Because it wasn't that long ago that, that Aaron's own two sons were burned up for offering strange fire in the exact same way. And they weren't even uh, bad intentioned. They were just overzealous. I can imagine Aaron's eye is twitching at this point. So either Korah is blinded by his own pride and sin, or he's kind of getting shaky on it, but it's really kind of too late to turn back now. We're in front of all these 250 famous guys, and I can't really back down now. I'm not real sure yet. What, at this point in the story, what his deal is. But everybody witnessed what happened to the sons of Aaron. So I'm not real sure why they went ahead and went through with it. And that led me to ask myself, and I'm going to ask you, have you ever taken something too far? You know, past the point of when you knew that it was wrong and you should back down, but you couldn't bear to concede it. And so I thought of a really funny example that happened to me um, yesterday, in fact, uh, of, of this. And it was involving m my husband and I. Of course, that's when those kind of battles happen where you don't want to concede the point the most. Um, so, and it was, we were kind of both in that position and at fault. And, and the, basically, the situation comes down to, and I know y'all are going to see this my way because this is ridiculous, but... It basically comes down to this. He gets mad when I move his stuff. But I'm like, put your stuff where it goes, and then you know where it is. And he's like, before I married you and moved in with three women, I knew where everything was. And I said, but you couldn't walk in the front door. So... Basically, we were doing it in jest. He knew that he should pick his stuff up, and I knew that if I was going to move his stuff, maybe I should just throw it all in one big pile by his side of the bed, and then he could go through it, and he would know where everything was. But neither one of us were willing to kind of concede that point, and it just reminded me of, of how you can kind of get yourself in that deadlock situation where, you know, you get to a point where it is just the point of it. You know, you're not going to back down. So I'm not real sure if that's where Korak was, but... Are you going to tell me not to move his stuff? Because I'm not going to let you say that. <laughs> yeah, Dr. Phil says that all the time. I'm happy being right, basically, is what I have to say to that. <laughs> uh, so either Korg actually believes that nothing's going to happen to him, he believes that he is this holy, rightful heir to this, or 
He doesn't really care. And maybe he's gotten to a place where he really doesn't have anything to lose anymore. So let's, look, let's think about what just happened to Israel. If you rewind um, to last week's Parsha and even the, the few before that, we just read the account of the spies. Israel was just told that they would not be going into the land. And that that generation that came out of Egypt was going to die in the wilderness. So there was also tremendous loss of life after that because they decided the next day they were really sorry and maybe we should go on and try to go into the land. And it was a bloodbath. Now the Levites don't fight in, in the battles, but I can only imagine um, who they might have lost that they were connected to, that, that went up to try to fight. And what's interesting about that kind of shift in perspective is that grief does strange things to people. In fact, Korok's name is associated with grief. His name means baldness in the sense of tearing your hair out in grief. It was the very word that was used when God commanded them, do not do this to yourselves when you're grieving. Do not, do not tear your hair out. It's a Moabite um, tradition or you know, something like that where they would rip the hair out of their head between their eyes in grief, kind of how you know, the tearing of the cloth, they would pull their hair out. And that's what Korok's name is. So maybe there was something about him that fit that name, you know, maybe there was something Korach about him. And this reminded me also of the current state of our country. You know, the retaliation killings that are happening now and the violence and the divisive rhetoric and the grab for power. You know, we're in election year. And the book of Daniel explains to us that when when spiritual forces are shifting and changing hands, there's war, there's battle in the heavenlies. So let's go on and look at eight, verses 8 and 11. So Moses is going to reveal Korach's true intentions now. So whatever he said before was very accusatory at Moses, take the, take the view off of him and put him, Moses in the hot seat. But Moses is going to let everyone know what's really happening. So he goes on and says, um, Listen now, sons of Levi. Isn't it enough that the God of Israel has set you apart from the community of Israel to bring you near to him, to do the work of the tabernacle of Adonai, and to stand before the community to minister to them? Isn't that enough for you? You see, Korah and his family were called out of the Levites to stand before the congregation and minister to them not to be standing before the congregation uh, causing strife and coveting the position that wasn't given to them. Moses goes on, So he brought you close, along with all your fellow sons of Levi, but you're seeking the priesthood too. Therefore you and all your following are banding together against Adonai. Who then is Aaron that you're grumbling against him? Moses is calling him out as a dictator posing as a socialist. You see, Korach is saying, we're all equal, Moses. Who are you to be leading over us, Aaron? We're all the same. 
But really, that's not what he wants. He doesn't want everyone to be the same. He wants to be in charge. It's like redistribution of wealth, except for the wealthy money. They don't want to redistribute their own wealth. Korok didn't want to distribute the power evenly. He wanted it. He felt it should be his. So Moses offers this reality check that they aren't coming against him and Aaron. In reality, they're coming against the Lord because it's his priesthood. He put them there. He chose Aaron, not Moses. Now, where's Reuben's clan in all this? This really seems like a family debate, debate amongst the Levites that really could have been handled like in the temple courtyard, basically. How did Reuben's kids get involved in this? Well, we know that the, the family of the Kohathites camped to the south and that Reuben's camp was right by them. So let's just assume for a minute that Datan and Abiram's camp was next door to Kohath. They were next door neighbors and they sat around the campfire and grumbled and talked about how bad Moses was. And that may be, that may be true. I don't really know how they're connected, but they did get involved. But you see, Reuben's, not, Reuben's kids, grandkids, whatever, these two boys, these two brothers, they're not seeking the same thing that Korach is seeking. You see, Reuben is the rightful firstborn, so he should have been the head. But when he did what he did, when he usurped his father's place, the position of firstborn went to Judah. You see, Reuben's line would have been king. But now they're not. So Reuben seeks to reclaim the rights of the firstborn and that leadership, that kingly role. You've got almost like Reuben's line versus Moses, who is in the position of leader of Israel at this time. And then you've got Korach's gang against Aaron, who's the high priest. So you've got these two distinct groups. Korach's rebellion is a religious rebellion. He wants to be Cohen Gadol, and Reuben's line wants to be king. So if you read Rabbi David's drosh uh, that came in the email this week, he touched on this a little bit. But this is a foreshadowing of an end times battle that will ensue. You see, in the end of days, we're told in scripture that there's going to be two separate and distinct entities that are going to arise in the form of beasts. It's after one o'clock. One will be a political beast, and he'll amass kingdoms and power, and he'll seek to sit on the throne of God in the city of God, declaring that he is God. The second beast will be a religious system, a beast known as the false prophet. He'll be disguised as a lamb, masquerading as the true lamb of heaven, but he'll speak with the tongue of a serpent. Interestingly enough, in the midst of this Parsha, we um, look to Revelation 8, and we see this strange connection it says, another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden incense burner. He was given much incense to offer up along with the prayers of all the Kedeshim upon the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the incense burner and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it to the earth. And there were clashes of thunder and rumblings and flashes of lightning and earthquakes. Then the seven angels holding the seven trumpets prepared to sound. Could the events of this week's Parsha be a blueprint for the moments preceding Yeshua's return? It's interesting. It intrigues me anyway. 
So I'm going to have to skip some pages here because we're getting, we're basically done with time. So let's see where we're going. We pretty much know that the rest of this story ends badly for these two groups. Uh, Korok and his um, gang get invited to a barbecue while Datan and Abiram uh, get swallowed up in the earth, basically. Sinkhole. Um, but one of the things that I, I want to point out as we kind of close up here is that as we're talking about what we can glean from this about our lives today, we see that Korok never does reconsider. There's no repentance. And guys, sometimes that's just how it is for some people. Sometimes that person is never going to repent. They're never going to ask your forgiveness. They're never going to ask God's forgiveness. Mm -hmm. But there's something that we can learn by watching Moses' response to this. Where am I? Now, when Korak and his assembly came in opposition the next day, they show up with their incense pans, by the way, ludicrous to me. But when they do that, God says to Moses and Aaron, separate yourselves from among this assembly so that I may consume them at once. But they fell on their faces and cried out, O God, O God of the spirits of all flesh, if one man sins, will you be angry with the entire community? They interceded for the nation. They humbled themselves when they had no blame in it, and they cried out for mercy as if it were their own lives at stake. And that's what we should be doing today. That is the example that we should be following. We should be able to recognize the accuser when we hear him. We should not be seeking revenge. We should not be making it paramount to defend ourselves. He will defend you. Revenge is his. There's a saying that says the word of God is like a caged lion. Let it loose and it will defend itself. We're called to humble ourselves and pray. We're called to intercede and beg for mercy. This division that's permeating the country must not be allowed to take hold in the body. Not one place in the midst of this community and in this mishpacha. Don't join in on speaking railing accusations against others. Don't get caught up in this media slant and this social media uh, banter back and forth. Stand for what you know is right. Better yet, kneel for what you know is right. But do it humbly. And do it while you're begging for mercy. Not on your own merits, but on the foundation of the truth of the word. Today, everybody has a spirit of offense. Everybody's offended. There's a Facebook meme going around that says, Good morning, Facebook. What are we going to be offended about today? As I, as I grew in, in years and maturity, I adopted a habit of saying out loud, speaking over myself, I am the hardest person there is to offend. And that has become true. It wasn't always the case. But now, you're going to really have to do something to ruffle my feathers. And I really think that's what we need to be seeking after. Everybody with this spirit of offense and, and getting your, your feelings on your, sh on your sleeve all the time and hurt and sulking, there's no place for that. There's no room for it. 
There's no room for it in the body. There's no room for it in your heart where God is dwelling with you. He can't live in there with that. You didn't get your way. You didn't get treated fairly. You think you'd do a better job. Someone takes your intentions out of context and accuses you falsely. Guess what? Get over it. There's no place for it. You're actually called and commanded to put on shoes of peace. Matthew 5 tells you, Messiah said, you've heard it was said, you shall not murder, and whoever commits murder shall be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who's angry with his brother shall be subject to judgment. He goes on to say, therefore, if you are presenting your offering upon the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come present your offering. If your brother has something against you, not if you're mad at him, if you even think somebody has taken something you've done and and it's hurt them, even if you didn't intend it that way, you are commanded to go to them because you're the peacemakers. If we can't make peace, How are we upset that the people out there can't make peace? If you're living with offense, with forgiveness right now, unforgiveness right now, rebellion or bitterness in your heart, now is the time to repent. Quit playing at your faith. Stop. It's a a very easy thing to do when you put that in light of what God has done for us. So I'm going to leave you with this closing phrase. Is it a small thing to you that God has given his only son for you? Is it not enough that he forgave your transgressions, that he adopted you into his family, that he included you, that he made you a co-heir, but now you want the judgment seat too? Is it not enough? May it never be. Be the light, be the salt, and be the bridge. And guess what, guys? Bridges are designed to get walked on. That's the point. Be the hardest person you know to offend. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's close in prayer. Father, we just come before you and, and we just admit that we don't, always know how to be the salt and the light and we don't always know how to take that first step into that path of peace it's hard and our flesh has to die and it's painful but father help us to remember that it's better to go through that that type of pain than to burn in the fire of your judgment lord help us to be mindful of you, set our eyes on you, focus on you in this, in this world as things continue to spiral out of control. Lord, we know that you are in control. You set up rulers. You take them down. You will defend your people. Father, you are holy. And you are the rightful judge and king, not us. Help us to vacate the judgment seat in our own lives and put you back in your proper place. We ask all these things, we beg these things in the name of Yeshua.
Amen.